Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. I'm Jack Baddams. And I'm Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a nature podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously... Then we are the natural selection. On today's show... Would the armed forces be better if they were all the geese? They'd be more aggressive. We fatten up the biggest pig Florida's ever seen and we put it out there and we catch ourselves Godzilla. This frog is living a sad, <laughs> dead-end life. I did a Brazilian car wash. <laughs> Roddy, I want to take us to not how many geese's favourite part of the world, but I would say maybe are, and probably the whole world's close second for places where mad shit happens. So not Nature's Thunderdome, Australia, but where is the place where you can find a insane news headline pretty reliably? Florida? Florida. Yeah. We're going to Florida. <laughs> okay. For this segment. Now, for those who don't know, we're going to be talking about it because Florida has a huge number of introduced species. Mm. Everything from wild boar to chameleons to massive macaws to walking catfish, they've got hundreds of introduced species of plants and animals living in the state, partly because the climate is so nice that whenever anything escapes, it can just live in Florida quite happily. And lots of people have kept lots of different plants and animals. Over time, they've escaped. Now, Florida is basically full of all these different animals. <laughs> you say the climate is nice. But I think one of the reasons things escape so much is because it frequently gets mashed up by hurricanes. Yes. And that's how things get out. So it's nice, but with a very definite kind yeah. of... Yeah, I think well, yeah, what I mean by nice is warm, <laughs> but with a sprinkling of tornadoes yeah. and hurricanes thrown in. Yeah. Okay, now something that's important to remember when we're talking about introduced species is that not all are invasive. That's only when they start causing problems. But one of the most famous invasive species in Florida is... The boa constrictors. The Burmese pythons. Oh, yeah. Big yeah. old snake. Yeah. <laughs> the Burmese pythons. Ever since the 90s, pythons have been on the loose in Florida. Having escaped from the pet trade in big numbers, they're now well established, particularly in the Everglades, where they really like the wetland sort of habitat. Now, just to get this across, these are big snakes. The biggest one ever caught in Florida was in December 2021, not that long ago, and was 5.5 meters long. 18 foot and weighed 98 kilos that's a big snake that's a big snake that's a big non-native animal problem to have in your area like what do we deal with gray squirrels canada geese yeah i'm gonna say though that they're not gonna get much sympathy from columbia and their hippos (laughs) (laughs) but yeah you think you've got it bad but definitely on a kind of global average yeah yeah Now, as you'd expect, these snakes are having negative impacts on the ecosystem. And a 2012 report stated that in areas where snakes are well established, foxes and rabbits have disappeared, while sightings of raccoons are down 99.3%, opossums down by 98.9%, and white-tailed deer down by 94.5%. Efforts to introduce rabbit populations have mostly failed due to pythons eating them, which accounts for 77% of all deaths of rabbits. So when they try to put rabbits back, 77% of rabbits die due to pythons. There's even evidence that bobcats, 
which are an, an American species of lynx, have declined too, with an 87.3% decrease in populations and some areas where they're now completely absent since the pythons have come in. Rabbits are native. Yeah, yeah, there's a native species of rabbit. In, cool. I think there was one called the, the swamp or the marsh rabbit or something like that, which uh, lived in and around yeah. the Everglades, okay. which okay. is uh, a python's favourite food. So basically, pythons are bad news and need to be controlled. And over 1,300 have been removed from the Everglades over the years, but finding them in the environment is very, very hard. Everglades, swampy, mangrovey style stuff, very, very difficult to get in there and find pythons that are very adept at moving through the water, hiding under foliage, blah, blah, blah. But last summer, mammal researchers working in Key Largo, which is a part of Florida, have discovered a new way to find the pythons. So these are mammal researchers that have found a new way of finding pythons. Do they put up tiny little signs that say free rabbits this way <laughs> and just wait for the pythons to come? That's exactly They do it like they do on Looney Tunes where they paint things onto the yeah. side of cliffs. Very wily Coyote style. <laughs> just a buffet of rabbits <laughs> and the pythons go headlong into it. Tasty rabbits this way. So the team were working along the edge of the Crocodile National Wildlife Refuge and they were observing raccoon and possum behaviour. To do this, they fitted GPS collars to dozens of animals to track their locations. Okay, So our mammal researchers are out in the Crocodile National Wildlife Refuge fixing GPS collars to opossums and to raccoons. Five months into the study, one of the possum collars started to send out a signal that's triggered by lack of movement. They call this the mortality signal. So when, okay. the, when the collar's not moved for very long, it pings a signal, the scientists get that, and it's like, oh, it's not moved for a while, it's probably dead. So the researchers thought that maybe it had been hit by a car or it had been attacked by a local dog, but then, a few hours later, the collar started to move again. So it had sent out this mortality signal that it had been stationary, and then it started to move. Right. So the team suspected that they knew what had happened, but trying to find the tracker to actually prove it was very, very hard because this area that they're working is is a labyrinth of underground pockets and caves and it's swampy and all that sort of stuff. So after a month of following the signal around and struggling to find the collar, they managed to track down the signal to this point and hauled a 12-foot-long, 30-kilo python out of a hole in the ground. It says here that the team euthanized the snake that they found opened her up, found the collar, still beeping inside this snake's body. And then it says, which they hope to fit to another opossum soon. Oh, no. Imagine being that possum and knowing that you had the collar of, like a collar that had been inside a snake that one of your, one of your brethren had been swallowed by. That's like going to a charity shop and being given a suit that's been taken out of a coffin. Yeah. You'd be like, I don't want this. This is... Yeah. So what had happened was it had killed the opossum. And then because they sit there for a long time and yep. digest, it had killed the possum, sat there, digested it for a very long time. That had triggered the mortality signal. And then the snake had slithered off and they were like, hang on. She was full of egg follicles inside mm -hmm. her. Big females like this, very, very fertile females that can produce a lot of eggs, are the holy grail for python hunters because you can stop. You know, if you kill, yeah. if you catch one python like this, you stop a lot more pythons yeah. getting into the ecosystem. Yeah. So this pattern of the collar stopping moving, 
sending out the mortality signal and then moving again then became a recognizable signal and pattern of events that they were seeing on these GPS collars. So pythons kill by crushing their constrictors. They catch something, they grab it with their mouths, and then they wrap around it. And it is, I would say, there are many, many nasty ways to go in nature. But constriction for me is very, it's in my top three. It's a pretty horrendous way to go, where a snake will wrap its coils around you, it will squeeze, and they're not just constantly squeezing. What pythons will do is they will wait for you to exhale, and then once you've exhaled, the prey has exhaled, they'll then tighten those coils around more. So it's not really squeezing the air out of you, it's just waiting for you to breathe naturally and then stopping you from being able to inhale by holding your chest so tightly together that you cannot breathe in. I also think that it's not actually asphyxiation or lack of oxygen that gets you. I think they trigger cardiac arrest, oh. and it's cardiac arrest which actually kills you in the not whole the, thing. Not, not, the, not, the, yeah. not the oxygen situation, but they do some, or like they compress the heart so much that it can't. Mm. I think it's actually the heart packing it in that, that does it somehow. Yeah, but strong agree that yeah. <laughs> I don't want that to happen to me. I'm not willing to find out, basically. Yeah. I'm going to leave it to a goose or something else. <laughs> so what happens is they constrict the prey, but remarkably the collars don't seem to be damaged. So the collars don't get crushed and destroyed. That manufacturer is putting that on all its branding from here on out. <laughs> Survived the crushing and ingestion yeah. by a python. Yeah. If you're in the if you're in the wildlife collar business, <laughs> that is a strong seal of approval. So they kill the prey. They then sit there long enough for the collar to admit the mortality signal before the python goes off again. And in summer last year, the same pattern happened again indicating that a big raccoon that they'd put a GPS collar on had been taken by a snake. They found this one much quicker, the signal leading them straight to a 34-kilo python also full of egg follicles, another big female. Then a third collar on an opossum did the same. But by the time the researchers got to this one, all they found was a big pile of snake poop, Ooh. meaning that the snake was so big that it must have been big enough to pass the collar right the way through them it's basically that scene from jurassic park 3 with the phone in the massive dung pile where the spinosaurus has eaten it I'm so, uh, that's exactly where i went yeah <laughs> that's why we co-host this podcast yeah. <laughs> as i was writing these notes i was i just started going being like but yeah so like I say, it's not completely foolproof because some of the snakes seem to be so big that they're able to pass these collars right through them. So it's not going to eliminate the snakes from Florida, but they seem to have stumbled across a method that can target the really important snakes when it comes to trying to keep a lid on their numbers, which are those big females, because it's the all the biggest snakes are females, uh, and they're the ones that are the most reproductive, and removing them from the ecosystem is by far and away going to have the biggest effect on the population i thought it was going to go that you were going to say that basically they just started farming raccoons to tag to put out in the world i mean like to die yeah but is, but was, it would lead you to the snake well yeah right i mean why no. why not so at the minute there is no like next step about how they might use this yeah. it's just that they've had three animals that have led them to, in two cases, snakes. In one case, a pile of snake poop. So it's sort of like the concept has been 
proven yeah. that this mode of tracking mammals can inadvertently lead you to some massive snakes. Um, but it's just there's no yeah way uh, that I've seen as of yet that um, that that's being used in the control of them. But it could be. I mean, we put out. I mean, rat poison isn't sentient. Yeah. So there's that. But you know, like using an animal's feeding. Mm. as a way to control its population as a pest yeah. exists because we bait traps and we yeah. do this and we do that. The problem here is that the snakes are so hidden you can't find them in the swamp, but the snakes are always going to find their food. Mm. So surely we just farm a load of raccoons. <laughs> tag enough. Tag well, them all up, put them out there, the snakes will find the raccoons and then... And the amazing thing is, is that by choosing the size of the animal, you can choose the size of the snake. So we release one 800-pound hog. (laughs) (laughs) We fatten up the biggest pig Florida's ever seen, and we put it out there, and we catch ourselves Godzilla. We get Titanoboa. (laughs) The moment that goes down, you have caught something big. Big. So that's, that's exactly the point, is if you go out there, you know, when people are going out there to control the pythons, um... You're putting a lot of effort in and you might be, you know, maybe you're taking out some adolescents, maybe you're taking out some of the males. You might not be having the hardest impact that you could on those populations. But this is a way of really focusing the effort on those snakes that are going to make the biggest difference because you're finding the biggest snakes because they're taking quite large prey uh, and they are the most important snakes of the populations because they are the ones that can produce the most eggs. Because they have bounties on the snakes as well, don't they? So they do. There have been, yeah, cases where they've done, uh, like, competitions, basically. Yeah. It's not like a constant thing, but oh, there I are competitions a... and events that they run that's basically like, go out into the Everglades and bring back some snakes and prizes for the biggest and the most and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, because I, again, think um, in... I don't know exactly. I kind of want to say, like, the Raj India or, like, British India as opposed to, like, I think it's the law. I think it's, anyway. um, And they put out bounties on cobras. And it's one of these studies into, it's like a, it's a study, I think, that gets picked up in kind of economics more sometimes as the inadvertent consequences that can spin off from an idea. So they wanted to control the cobra population I don't know all the details, but just to guess, you know, like farmers, farm workers were getting bitten. So they're like, we need to control the cobra population, Um, put a bounty on each cobra. But what happened was people then just started breeding cobras to take in and get the bounty. So then once that had kind of been rumbled, they were like, right, well, we're cancelling the bounty. But then everyone was like, well, why am I farming cobras and released all the cobras? So they put out a bounty to control the cobras and inadvertently like exploded the cobra population. <laughs> so if I was in Florida and there was a constant bounty on... Yeah. Uh, I was going to say boa constrict, constant bounty on the Burmese pythons, I'd be seriously considering farming raccoons. But then I am... <laughs> but, to, then, no, but then you would just catch a big female python mm. raise all of its eggs and then <laughs> yeah. take them in yeah but it's out of the wild yeah very very true okay so that was something that i found recently and that got me into the topic that i'm going to give you a few more examples on which is uh unusual things found inside animals yeah okay so we're gonna Here we go we're gonna talk about another story 
And then I'm going to give you uh, three or four other examples just to finish off. And I want to take us to New Zealand mm -hmm. next in 2017 and to an underweight looking leopard seal on Uratai Beach. Now, leopard seals are rare visitors to New Zealand. Uh, leopard seals, if you don't know, they are like the final boss of seals. Like <laughs> they, and I know that elephant seals exist, but leopard seals are hardcore ice cold yeah they're the yeah. ones that like will eviscerate penguins and all that yeah. sort of stuff There's, if you google like leopard seal if you i think it's leopard seal ripping penguin in two you'll see a video of a, a penguin. Uh, let, let me guess a leopard seal ripping, ripping a penguin in two you, you know what you've absolutely <laughs> cracked it the penguin's going about his business on the top and this leopard seal must have come up from below and like it's got the top half of the penguin in its mouth and the picture is the back half of the penguin sort of where the penguin was <laughs> and the, the, the top half of the penguin very much where the leopard seal is going <laughs> yeah they are one of you know the apex predator a, a killer whales aside orca aside the apex predator in antarctica but they do rarely turn up in new zealand uh, they occasionally turn up when they stray too far from their uh, Antarctic waters. And scientists at the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research often keep tabs on these leopard seals mm -hmm. when they arrive to see how they're doing. And one of the key things that they do to analyse how healthy they are is they look at their faeces. Yep. So they collect the faeces of these leopard seals and that allows them to assess their health. And most importantly, often most interestingly, is the diet. What are these leopard seals eating when they're stranded in New Zealand? So there's this leopard seal on Uratai Beach uh, looking a little bit worse for the wear. Somebody's reported it, saying they think it looks a bit thin. And the leopard seal's poo is collected after it had been reported. Um, and it was frozen for over a year because a vet came out to see the seal. It had been reported as being thin, got out there, thought that the seal actually wasn't in that bad a way. But there was some poo there, so they collected it. But then they froze it and they didn't analyze it straight away because the leopard seal was deemed to be in a healthier state than they thought. So it was put in the freezer. A year later, they thought, we should probably get around to analyzing that leopard seal poo that's sat in the freezer. Yeah, we've had, we've had a turd in the freezer for a year. Is anyone going to take a look at it? <laughs> so they thawed it out for analysis. And lo and behold, right in the middle of it is a USB stick. No way. <laughs> right in the middle of the leopard seal turd is a USB stick. Researchers got this USB stick, as you can imagine, quite surprised to find it there, <laughs> and let it dry out over the course of a few weeks just to see if there was any data that could be salvaged from this USB. Remarkably, they plugged it in and found a load of holiday photos on there. And videos. And videos including, uh, there's a video that you can watch that's like a, a POV shot of somebody kayaking. So it's like a kayaker paddling around Porpoise Bay in South Island, New Zealand. Uh, and there's seals sort of jumping around them. And these images and videos were released on the news as being like, please can we track down whose USB stick this is? Because we found it inside a leopard seal shit and we want to know whose USB it is. When did you say this was? So this was 2017. I think that it was reported. And then I think they defrosted it in 2018. But it's around 2017, 2018 time. Okay. So they released all this on the news. 
and the owner saw it on the nightly news when it was announced and the press release all came out. And it was the woman who had reported the leopard seal in the first place. Step forward, Amanda Nally, who came forward and went, hang on, they're my videos. That's my USB stick. Amanda happens to be the only sea lion volunteer on the south coast, and she was the one that had spotted this leopard seal. She was the one that had reported it as being underweight. The vet came out to have a look, said, actually, I think your leopard seal's not too bad. But she, on the beach, found the poo and went, I think you should probably take this away, though, just to make sure. Amanda. So when you hear this, you think, well, she was, if we're getting our crime scene investigation hats on, she was at the scene with the poo. She was there together. You think, well, she's just dropped her USB stick into it it's been taken away whatever but the scientists who analyzed it say it was so deeply embedded in there that there is no way it could have been just dropped at that moment so the scientists say that she accidentally dropped it somewhere else it was eaten by a bird the leopard seal turd was so full of feathers that the bird ingested the usb stick the leopard seal ate the bird, and then Amanda happened to find that leopard seal that had eaten her USB stick and happened to be the one that pointed to the leopard seal poo for it to be collected, taken away, frozen, and then a year later, defrosted. No. <laughs> when, I, when, I was, when I was following this story and going back through articles and things like that, I found the article that was looking for the owner of it, and I saw this big press release and it was like, we're trying to track down the person whose USB stick this is. It's been found inside a leopard seal poo. And I was like, there's got to have been an ending to this story. So then I Googled it and I you know, was trying to use the right search terms. And then it came up with an article that said, owner of seal poo USB found and the story gets weirder. And I was like, yes, just what I wanted to hear. Ding, 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 ding. So it's just an absolute freak coincidence that she lost her USB stick, a bird ate it, the leopard seal ate that bird, and then Amanda found that leopard seal. And then the USB survived, somehow being ingested by a bird and a seal. You know, you're talking about the guy who's boasting because his GPS collars can go through a snake. Imagine being the memory stick maker and being like, oh yeah, we got a USB stick that can go in the sea, be eaten by a bird, then be eaten by a seal that eats the bird, <laughs> then be frozen for a year, and will still have your holiday snaps on it. But this this is impossible. <laughs> it's this is mad. This is impossible. It is absolutely insane. Like my I I'm really struggling to think of anything to say because I cannot think of anything to fit this. Like the chances of this are beyond infinitesimal like this is it's a once in a lifetime moment it's, it's over, we're, it's, we're it's privileged a, to a, live in the same generation that yeah. usb seal poo happened yeah yeah it's a once in like a universe you yeah. know it's like i feel more confident in going out of that door right now and seeing a dinosaur alive <laughs> than this story ever happening to someone because if you wind it even further back the fact, you know, she lost her memory stick, okay, 
that if there wasn't a lost leopard seal from Antarctica, that bird <laughs> isn't going to get eaten for it to then even be rediscovered. So it all relies on the chance event of a lost leopard seal from Antarctica turning up in New Zealand on her patch of New Zealand that she surveys as a sea lion volunteer. If that leopard seal had a better sense of direction, she never would have seen her holiday pictures again. Yeah. They'd have just been gone. <laughs> do we know, Do we know? did they do anything on the feathers and do we know what type of bird it was? Because uh, are you going to tell me it was a, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> it was her parrot. Yeah, exactly. That she had sold 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I'm afraid I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, it was a caper Kaylee. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that, I mean, is is the most extraordinary story. I, I have certainly read for a long time. Yeah. It was just one of those ones where you just keep reading it and it gets even better. Yeah. But now, just to uh, wind up with a couple of um, quick fire. I've got four. Quick fire. Quick fire round of what's in that pheasant. <laughs> if you get it right, you take it home. Quick fire. Of weird things found in animal stomachs, starting with a cod. What um, do you think was found in a Norwegian cod? A. It was an eleven-pound cod. Just in case that influences a, your view. A two thousand and three five-door Honda Civic, <laughs> one point six liter diesel. I see your Honda Civic, and I raise you a vibrator. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, this is Bjorn Freeland, who was gutting an 11-pound cod when he found an unusual item buried in its stomach. As well as partially digested fish, the stomach contained a rather large sex toy. The fisherman conjectured that the fish may have eaten the vibrating dildo by mistake, thinking it was a cephalopod or another fish because it was quite brightly coloured. He goes on to say, I was astonished. It was totally unexpected. I had never seen anything like this before. I imagine you hadn't, Bjorn. <laughs> Yeah. Next up on our list is an animal that will be no stranger to people who regularly play What's in That Pheasant. It is the tiger shark. Now, the tiger shark is famous within weird things found in side animals circles. <laughs> within What's in That Pheasant enthusiast circles. As being an animal that an infinite amount of things have been found inside them. I'm talking like number plates and things like that. Car tire. Yeah. Yeah, so so in this one, so being hang on, yeah, being that it's already it's a podium finisher most days of what's in that pheasant. So I feel for it to be brought up now, it has to be exceptionally. Is it a small Mediterranean bungalow? <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole suit of armor. Damn, you know, I, I kind of feel like I was close. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm sort of okay with that. I mean, I feel like you'd have a suit of armour in a Mediterranean, you know, like a sort of Scarface. It, it, it just digested the rest of them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the mortar was very, you know, flimsy. Yes, it was a whole suit of armour, complete with a helm. And nobody has any idea how the steel suit ended up in the water or how the shark ingested it. Oh. <laughs> yep. Next on what's in that pheasant, okay. we go to Wyoming and meet a trout. What has the trout eaten? Is it a. Um, 
a washer dryer combo <laughs> unit. <laughs> It's 1992, and a fisherman Wyoming has discovered inside the stomach of a trout that he had caught a severed thumb. <laughs> just a just a whole human thumb. The missing digit was eventually traced to Robert Lindsay. He had been involved in a boating how, accident. How, well, how, how do you trace? How do you how do you go about tracing a thumb that you found in a trout? <laughs> Who do you go to? Who do you possibly approach with that? Sorry. I'll tell you how you do it. I've found a thumb in a trout. Oh, you want to go talk to Stephen? He keeps the log. You know. I'll tell you how you do it. You look for the guy. You speak to the council and they just sort of ping you around a couple departments while they try and work out what to do with you. You look for the guy with the missing thumb. So, Robert Lindsay... And the license plate, fuck trouts. <laughs> Robert Lindsay had uh, had a boating accident the year before when two of his fingers and his thumb had been cut off by a propeller. While the fingers were found immediately after, the thumb remained missing and therefore couldn't be reattached. So it's um, hypothesised that the trout ate the thumb after it was severed and was just floating around in the water and that the thumb had remained undigested in the stomach of the fish for a year. And finally... Yep. Our last entrance in what's in that pheasant is... Um, is it... We're in China. The entire labour backbench. <laughs> <laughs> and what's it inside? you want to guess what animal it's inside? It's in... They found the entire labour backbench in China. Yeah, we're in China. In a golden snub-nosed monkey. <laughs> While gutting a three-foot-long squid to prepare it for sale, a fisherman in China hit a live bomb with his knife. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't even understand this game! Thankfully, the bomb didn't go off and the man quickly called emergency services. The squid had apparently swallowed the explosive device, mistaking it for a prawn. I once, years ago, was on a family holiday in Scotland and we rented a little sort of beachside cottage thingy and one day we got up and there was a porpoise washed up on the thing. I thought this is only, I don't know, it's in the last five years and I thought this is very sad but very cool, you know, never seen it. Ooh, how interesting. And Googled kind of, because at the time... At the time, I was working on the UK bat helpline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyone found a bat in the UK, they called me. Uh, and one of you know my colleagues, there was a number of us. But uh, that is a story for another day. Um, and I kind of figured, I bet there is a founder dead whale hotline that you should ring. And there was. Fast forward, the mad coincidence is a few weeks later, I got back from the holiday and was job hunting and saw that role being advertised the person to run the i found a whale number i applied for it never got it and all the rest i really think we need 
to sort of centralise what's in that pheasant and just have a hotline that maybe at an international level, maybe this is something for the UN. So if you're a fisherman in China who finds a squid with a bomb in it or you're a fisherman in Wyoming who's got a trout with a thumb or like I said, you come across a porcupine that (laughs) on examination appears to have three DVD players inside. You can just call someone and they will be like, oh... That's um, Mrs. Smith down the road has been looking for her DVD players. We're very glad you've been able to find them and just join it all back up again. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I think the world does need that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in this case, the fisherman in China had to uh, yeah call the emergency services and a special police team removed the dead creature and performed a controlled explosion on the bomb. Later, confirming that the bomb was live and could have been detonated at any time. Oh my god! <laughs> and that is the conclusion to. What's in that pheasant? (laughs) What a game. What a round. Thanks for playing, everybody. We have a new segment for the show, which is very exciting, because as well as this new segment, we are delighted to announce that we have a new, and not just new, but first, proper sponsor. Yeah. Who are they? They're Birder. Birder. Birder is a bird watching app, a social app that turns it into a bit more of a game using challenges, leaderboards, and you can collect badges as you um, spot birds and build up your own life list on your bird watching profile through the app. It's basically like a cross between a social media that's for birders and, uh, like you say, the gaming element of it. It's sort of like mixing bird watching with social media with, with the, yeah, the real world game element of it. Yeah, you can do things around your area like see what birds people near you have seen. You can join challenges. Challenges, for example, I've joined the London bird watching. Uh, I think it's the year in London, uh, but similarly like every month, uh, challenges for number of birds seen. And you can create your own bird list to keep track of your sightings. And it also has a species guide section of the app. And the species guide allows you to do a bit more of a deep dive on a particular bird you may have seen and throughout this season we are going to be looking at some of the sort of I don't know flagship birds does that make sense yeah, we're going to be taking a few birds off off of there aren't we and, and having a little look at them starting with a bird which we have not only already featured on the podcast but a bird which we have seen ourselves on the mm. podcast and not a bird which we have seen incidentally but a bird which we traveled to see Oh, yeah. For the podcast. Yeah, in our first How Many Geese on location? Second. Oh, in the wild. In that the, was it. In, yeah. the, in, the, in the big outdoors. In yes. the field. In, in the a field. rainy hide in Gloucestershire. Exactly. Where we both went to see some of the UK's common cranes. Yeah. Now, I say common. Of course, they weren't always common. No. <laughs> they were not that long ago. Extinct cranes in the UK. Exactly. But uh, Slimbridge and the... WWT have been doing a fantastic job of bringing them back, reintroducing them, captive rearing them. And this last year has not just been any year for the cranes. And, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back, but it is following us visiting them. Yeah, It's been the most successful year (laughs) for cranes in the UK. It's it's quite the coincidence. (laughs) But fantastic news that they've had the most successful year in terms of the number of cranes which have, uh, juvenile cranes which have hatched, which have been reared, and which have gone on to fledge. Mm. Now, as we said, Birder gives you a deep dive on species, offers you up different facts, so there's always that little bit of tidbit information which you can bust out at um, 
social gatherings. An occasion which calls for busting out a fact. Bird facts. Exactly. Yeah. If you listen to this podcast, I'm sure you're very familiar with such social occasions. Exactly. Um, but, for example, like, I'm going to be completely honest, I did not know this mm. because... Up until now, you've basically been my premier source of bird information. <laughs> so anything which is brought to me now through this app, I'm seeing as a failure. On <laughs> a blemish on your... Uh... Why, why, for example, did you not tell me when we were in the presence of cranes that they've been recorded flying at 33,000 feet? Yeah, I, di- I didn't know this until recently. Oh, um, I didn't know this until a few months ago. I think it was recorded over the Himalayas they were flying well that in particular context mount everest is twenty nine thousand yeah feet so it's basically it is the height that like commercial airlines fly at yeah and i know that many birds that you know they they're flying very high to get over the himalayas but also they're avoiding mountain passes where they can be bombed by eagles so they get high to get over the top cut over them and avoid the eagles yeah oh amazing only one other species of bird has been recorded higher than a common crane is it a Goose. It's not a goose. Bar-headed goose is third on the list. Bar-headed <sighs> goose is the one that routinely flies over the Himalayas. Yeah. So that is uh, 29,000 feet. <laughs> Straight into the top of Everest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just clipping that, <laughs> clipping that peak. Crane second. Yep. And then at the top... Is a really lost chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, mallard duck is actually in the top ten, yeah. which I was surprised about. But the top one is the Rupal's vulture. Which uh, okay. was recorded at 37,000 feet, 37,100 feet, and was identified from its feathers once the plane had landed. Oh, <laughs> Let's just no. say. <laughs> oh, but yeah, no. Crane, as, as the second highest recorded flying bird in the world, is very impressive. Very, very impressive. And if you want to see a crane... Uh, there's Slimbridge, but Birda also will let you know, um, like I said, you go into the crane page and you can see the facts about them, but it also shows you where people have been seeing them out and about. I had a quick check. There's some um, pins been dropped for Norfolk, yeah. kind of East Anglia way, and you can check out, you know, not just UK locations, it's it's global. So, you know, the range of the crane is massive mm. in the bigger sense. But yeah. Yeah. So, and that's Birda, that's B-I-R-D-A. Exactly that. Okay, it's time for that part of the show where we take one of nature's magnificent creatures and we pit it against Roddy Shaw in a fight to the death. Now, today's animal has been submitted on Instagram by Martin Roche, who has suggested Bruno's cask-headed frog. Let's get to know our foe, because... Before we start, actually, I'm going to say that it's rare that animals get get suggested for this segment that I've never heard of, but this <laughs> was one of them. So well done, Martin, and it's a pretty cool animal. Hailing from Brazil and only Brazil, this endemic species is found in forests, shrubland, and freshwater marshes. It's a relatively large frog with large females measuring just over three inches from the tip of their nose to the back of their body. Their backs are browny grey with dark spots on them, but it's the shape of the frogs that I think is amazing. Their heads are flat and broad and pointed, and they have these forward-facing eyes. I think they look a bit like a sort of cartoon sock puppet. And I I think a little bit unnerving, actually. There's a couple of pictures where you see them, and they look a bit strange. The amazing thing about the cask-headed frog is it's able to secrete toxins from its skin. But it takes the use of these toxins to a whole other level compared to the poison dart frogs that also 
as we've spoken about on the show, secrete toxins. Because the cascaded frog have bony spines on their skulls, bony protrusions, which the frogs can push through their own skin through the poison glands to coat these spines with this toxin. They then just straight up headbutt any predator that they're trying to defend themselves against, plunging those bony spines that are now covered in toxin into the animal that they're attacking. Now, only two species of frog are known to do this. They were discovered in 2015. One is another species called the Greening's frog. And one of the scientists involved in the study was actually injected while collecting a Greening's frog. And they felt pain radiate through their arm for five hours. Thankfully, they weren't headbutted by the cask-headed frog, though, as its venom is 25 times more potent than that of a Ferdelance pit viper. And one gram of cask-headed frog venom is able to kill 80 humans. Jesus Christ! So, Roddy Shaw, bearing all that in mind, how many Bruno's cask-headed frogs are too many Bruno's cask-headed frogs? I'd never heard of this thing before. This is madness. Insane. I knew I knew there were, I knew there was a frog that had the kind of spikes on its skull thing because I know there's another frog which does the wolverine trick and it breaks its fingers and the bones of its fingers stick out of its hand Whoa. and it uses those to like fight basically <laughs> which is like just beyond hardcore like just yeah. Walk away. Yeah. <laughs> like, violence isn't the answer, especially when you have to fight with your own bones. Yeah. Um, <laughs> violence isn't the answer. Let's fight this frog. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how big? Uh, so for the females, the larger females, they're about three inches from tip of the nose to the back of their body. That's a decent-sized frog. Yeah, yeah, they're a decent. Yeah, they're a decent. Yeah. Size. Have you got the picture? Have you seen the picture of the one sort of like looking over the leaf? Yes. They're just. I think they're quite unnerving-looking things. It has got they're very pointy faces and the eyes facing forward. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Look, looking at the picture of it, kind of peering up and over the leaf with the big eyes. It does. If you were in a kind of office cubicle, it looks like it would kind of peer over and be like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's exactly. That's yeah. exactly the vibe. Yeah. Have you done your filing yet? In a quite a slow sort of, you know, we were told we weren't allowed to leave before the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know. You had an extra two minutes on your lunch, I noticed. <laughs> like, this this frog would tell the boss yeah. what you're up to when you're just trying to live your life. And you know you couldn't talk back to it because it could literally just headbutt you and kill you on the spot. Yeah, it looks a bit like some of these pictures. There's a bit of like the bad monster in Monsters Inc. It looks a little Randall. bit. Yes, Randall. Mm. That kind of very. <laughs> I don't know what noise this frog makes, but I bet it's. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So basically, you've got yeah. to avo- you've got to avoid getting headbutted. Yeah, given the size and everything else, I am... Have you ever stood on a Lego brick? Yeah. That's what I think this frog is going to be like. Mm. I think it's going to be like... I just have to not... Yeah. It's a Lego brick frog situation. Yeah. The classic. The classic. The classic. We've all been there. Can't you get special slippers to pr- protect yourself from Lego bricks? Um, Probably. Or are, are they just like boots? Walking boots? 
yeah. <laughs> yeah, steel cap, like nothing can possibly hold back the brick. Yeah. I was just thinking, you know, this might be a fight that Lego might sponsor because mm. I swear they brought out a, maybe it was like an April Fool's corporate joke kind of thing, but like ah. a special slipper yeah. to, to save from the bricks. But but yeah, definitely footwear yeah. um, is happening. But they, like, I think if you just protected your foot though, you know, yeah. frogs famously quite good at jumping. Yeah. This is an aggressive frog. This is like after the, the poison dart frogs are incredibly toxic, but you have to eat them. Yeah. So whatever. This frog, although it's you know, it's not it's defending itself, but in defending itself, it can be pretty gung ho. <laughs> yeah. Any any animal which charges head first, literally face first into the its predator. Yeah. Doesn't fear death <laughs> in any way. I want to fight them in a dry room. Oh yeah, they don't like that. They're not going to like that. No, it's yeah. But then I am conscious that maybe the more they dry out, the more the spikes stick out of their head. Oh yeah. So do, do you want to say why frogs don't like? Why oh, that wouldn't be good news for a frog? So frogs, everyone knows they have a kind of wet skin situation. Um, frogs and other amphibians are able to exchange gases through their skin. And so the drier it gets, the more it interferes with that. So you're essentially suffocating them or choking yeah. them in a weird way. They breathe through their skin. They though. breathe through their skin, yeah. Um, but yeah, the more you desiccate it, the, the, the more, more lego it becomes. Yeah, so actually I need to go the opposite. I need to mm. I need to flood these frogs. Yeah, so they become like little puffer fish. Little puffer fish, <laughs> and the spikes can't possibly get through... Yeah. We need to saturate these frogs. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, we need to screw up their osmotic balance, left, right, and center. We need them inflating like little puffer fish. Yeah, we need they the... need to be like little water balloons. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what is the wettest? Mm. Oh, there's got to be some other than a paddling pool. Um, car washers. <laughs> for anything in a car wash yet. Yeah. Okay, you know what's really wet? Mm. A car wash. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And also, okay, yeah, look, they they like they're like on leaves. That frog, that frog is a car wash attendant. Yes. That's the job that frog oh, has. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. And they take it so seriously. I know, £6.99, but it's 50p for the wax if you <laughs> want that on. And we'll check your tyre pressure. But, you know, yeah. Okay. This frog is living a, a sad, <laughs> dead-end life. <laughs> I did a Brazilian car wash. <laughs> Oh no, this frog's in like Lincolnshire. Okay, <laughs> like, okay. Not to say that it's any sadder, but uh I'm not going to Brazil. <laughs> um, but I maybe it is a Brazilian car I don't know. Car wash anyway. Mm. But and the way they all sit in the leaves, I think the way like a car wash when it's still, there's all the hangy down yes. spinny things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I imagine that's where they'd like to kind of go. Yeah. Um but him and all his friends, he'd tell them, you need to get out, we're starting the car wash. But a surprise start to that, and they're getting oversaturated, first mm. of all. They're going to float up. Yeah. And then all the spinnies going to yeah, gonna knock them about. They're not going to be able to... I just... So the question is, could I survive a car wash? <laughs> just myself. If I was stood in a car wash, would I do okay? And I reckon... But do you not think it's going to be... if Right, so all those, like, big rolly things are yep. coming down and this things like moving around are you not then just like 
in in some sort of like pinball potluck situation where they're in contact with the frogs where there are just highly venomous frogs just like being buffeted around the place just ricocheting off of the car wash and you're just being thrown in there as well but it is ultimately a question of statistics this segment because it's how many you know, mm. it's never infinite. So there's always going to be the frog that gets through. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it's... I I can only put in place, <laughs> as best I can, what will keep me safe mm-hmm. from Bruno's cask-headed frog. Yeah. And on this day, that has come out at oversaturating them so that they swell and the spikes can't get through. Yeah. And then putting us all <laughs> in a live car wash... And well, you, yeah, for further unclear reasons in Lincolnshire. Because what you have to do, that's the way if you get, yeah, because you can't, I was just thinking, well, you just go in a car. But what you have to do, because they're such snooty mm. attendants, yes. you walk in and they're like, excuse me, yeah. you can't, it's dangerous to go into the car wash yep. outside of your vehicle. Exactly. And then, and then you're like, come at me. Yeah. And then it's like, I'm going to have to get yeah. you know, the manager. That's and then so they cool. all come out more and more and more yep. until... Yeah. yeah, and I'm just that, like you said, it is a kind of pinball situation. They're pringing around. Some of them, like I said, they're gonna they're gonna swell up. They're now mini like water balloons. They're hitting yeah. me ass first. They yeah. haven't got any spikes there. Yeah, um, but eventually there is going to be one which gets through. Mm-hmm. So, do you need to know how big an average car wash is? <laughs> <laughs> the volume of a car wash. I mean, if we did, if we worked out the volume of a car wash and the volume of a swollen frog, <laughs> that would do something for us. But I'm not sure what. <laughs> um, how long? How long is a car? Like time-wise, ten minutes you're in a car wash for? Yeah, it can't be longer than that. All right, ten minutes in a car wash. Frogs pinging around. So it's ten minutes. It's ten minutes. If I can survive, because if I can survive the ten minutes and the car wash stops, then the attendant is just going to headbutt me. Yes, because he's been in the booth and he won't go into the car wash because the rules say you're not allowed to go in the car wash when it's operating. Yeah. All his friends were chilling in there because reasons unclear. But he's going to watch. If I survive the ten minute car wash, I it's he's ending it there and okay, then because right. that, you've broken too many rules today. <laughs> yeah, so it's ten minutes in a car wash until the attendant ends it. So, Pudding Practice asks, pick a job. Now all the staff are geese. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. Q-busting baristas. Havoc UN. Dr. Turnhead and Honk? Question mark. (laughs) Okay. Um, I don't really know if the question is the best or the worst or the whatever it is, chaos is ensuing. Let's just workshop some ideas. Yeah. Um, uh, Exactly. (laughs) Well, no, what I was thinking of, I was just going to say the army. Okay. But would that make them better? Would the armed forces be better if they were all the geese? They'd be more aggressive. Maybe not so good at sort of UN peacekeeping operations. I think the UN would descend into absolute <laughs> madness if it, if every country just sent a goose <laughs> to the UN. <laughs> um, what about something? Carers. Disaster. Chaos. Absolute chaos. We very rarely actually talk about geese, which I quite like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... A goose wouldn't make a very good electrician. 
expand. Well, it's just got no fingers. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of things that geese couldn't do. In fact, there's more... Th- I would argue that within the human sphere of employment, there are more jobs that geese can't do than they can do. That's my two cents, putting practice. <laughs> Uncontroversial take there. <laughs> so, uh, jobs that don't require many things to do with your hands. Acting. <laughs> Hollywood, if the, the Oscars was just... Was just geese, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think actors could be a... I think I, I actually think we could replace actors with geese. If I would... So, you know how, like, Team America... Uh-huh. They just made a movie with puppets. Yeah. If they did that, but with geese. <laughs> <laughs> Dubbed over the geese, whatever, but yeah, yeah, everyone in it was a goose. Yeah. Um, what else requires not many motor skills? Counseling. Oh. How do you mean counseled by a goose? You'd come out more enraged yeah. than when you went in. <laughs> yeah. Anyone going in there trying to like find peace, find calm center themselves <laughs> absolute opposite effect you're just going to come out the public will be full of screaming people just running at each other <laughs> bakeries would never be safe again <laughs> um what else so i was thinking in a sense of you know in times of crisis they're like we are deploying the army yeah to uh-huh. you know there's a flood bringing the army in to do that kind of thing what um And that's almost sent me somewhere else. But what I was thinking was what shortages are there in the workplace at the moment? For example, hospitality in the world post-Brexit is struggling. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. certainly in London, everyone's got, you know, staff wanted, staff wanted, staff wanted. Yeah. Geese. Geese. Okay, got you. So (laughs) geese, so the geese aren't taking over the job. But they're working alongside their human compatriots <laughs> to plug <laughs> within the workplace <laughs> to plug a shortfall in the market. Yeah, exactly. I think like truck drivers as well. I think uh, that's yeah. something. That oh my god! Customs officials. I like the idea of hospitality, and um, you're just sitting down at a restaurant or a cafe, and then just hearing the slap of feet <laughs> on the tiled floor, and then just looking down. Yeah. <laughs> At the table and seeing a little goose with a name tag on that's just like yeah a little grey like suit and tie yeah, yeah. <laughs> sea goose yeah <laughs> um, I'll be your waiter today yeah oh <laughs> <laughs> but also like I quite you know in in an olive branch sense mm. you know not that we're at war with the geese no. but uh, I'd hope that they would be like oh we've been chosen to help out kind of so they'd like try their best yeah and you just have yeah. these little you know trying with the little pencil and the little pad <laughs> in its mouth exactly just desperately trying to help out and please yeah yeah okay what else uh, i think another thing that's struggling post brexit is uh um, people harvesting like crops oh yeah you know, people picking fruit and things yep. like that yeah don't know whether i'd trust geese out in a field with a load of food on their own not picking gooseberries. To bring, mm. Or a gooseberry picked by a goose might get a particular premium Ooh, in yeah. the farmer's market. That's in the specially selected yes. section, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Goose picked <laughs> gooseberry. Yeah. It's like how, um, you know, Parmesan cheese is like only Parmesan cheese. It was like champagne is only champagne if it's from Champagne in France. Ah. There's that special stamp that food gets if it's... Is it a gooseberry if it's not been picked by a goose? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, hmm. 
The NHS? NHS. They, I mean, they are struggling. They're struggling. Yeah. And it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if the government suddenly announced that this was their plan of dealing with it. <laughs> we hear you striking NHS workers that are under pressure, but here is our solution. 15 million grey leg geese. <laughs> Do grey leg migrate? Uh, they're not so much anymore, certainly not the ones in the UK. There okay. are plenty of geese that do migrate. Well, this is what from. I was... Well, is it a concern that you staff the NHS <laughs> with geese of, you know, like Canada geese or whatever, yeah. and then... Come the spring. They're off. <laughs> they're gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to choose pink-footed geese because they'd be in Svalbard by April. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but very short-term visas. So yeah. maybe the current government would not have to worry about them settling. <laughs> um, mm. Teaching, also Teaching. on its knees. Yeah, I don't want to know what that would do to the children. No, but top three subjects a goose would teach. Um, swimming. So, yeah, I was, going, I was going down PE route. I was just trying to think if there's anything else other than swimming. Yeah, I mean, martial arts and <laughs> just self-defense, r- rugby, uh, <laughs> anything that involves like any sort of physical yeah. aggression, rage, yeah. <laughs> and swimming. Yeah. Um, what else would they teach? I think a goose would be good at. This would be a great time to like find out that they, you know, just really love English literature. Yes. Uh, geography. That's true. Uh, aerial maps yeah aerial maps navigation uh, navigation exactly uh, so orienteering I think they could probably teach as well that's true yeah yeah. I think I think they've got a lot of strings there both for PE yeah I think, and, and also they'd be the classic scary PE teacher yes they're definitely they are they're employed to teach PE yeah but when the geography teacher's out yeah they're the one getting parachuted in yes they're just like do a lesson on maps yeah uh, history <laughs> The world according to Goose. <laughs> Religious studies. Really, they'd be. They'd have a lot to say about medieval banquets. Oh, they would. Yeah. Yes, they would. Very biased. Yeah. Uh, rightfully so. I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't hold it against them for being a bit annoyed that Henry VIII would hate <laughs> so many of them. Eat eighteen of them in an afternoon. Yeah. Uh, he got what was coming from to him, though, didn't he? Yeah. How, the, how did he die? Uh, didn't he just get? Fat and but it's uh, not like in battle, and no, 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 yeah, yeah, gout, yeah, that sort of thing. I think, yeah, too much goose, too much goose, too much goose in his arteries. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're we're plugging teaching, we're mm. plugging the NHS, mm. any leftover geese do a bit of hospitality, yeah, world solved, yeah. <laughs> Hello, listener. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Season 5 of How Many Geese. We're very, very glad to be back. Remember to check out our friends over at Birder by downloading their free app and getting your bird on. And please do consider dropping us a donation over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash howmanygeese. Any donations that we get go straight back into the making of the show, and we've got some pretty big plans on the horizon. Thank you all very much for listening, and we'll see you next Tuesday.